we're going to be in a weird today. Uh, Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Uh, I want you to go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. It's in page 703 in the Pew Bible. Uh, those Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it, grab it, put your name in it. It's yours. Uh, consider it our Christmas gift to you. Um, Well, I'm glad to see that you have arrived and you made it through the Mayan apocalypse this week. <laughs> um, I'm sure most of you saw on the news or in the paper or if you're on Facebook, it was blowing up the social media, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Mayan apocalypse happened this week and you all made it, so congratulations for that. Um, you know, I, I saw somebody on Facebook uh, say that really what the Mayans were predicting was the, the end of the Twinkie. And uh, so that's... <laughs> Actually, my wife found this picture um, on, on Facebook. <laughs> so uh, Jesus made sure that we still have Christmas. Relax. Christmas is still happening. Awkward question time here at the beginning. Um, it's a question maybe you've uh, never answered before. Um, I've asked it before. It's been a few years ago. Um, how many of you, um, I have been you before, if this is you. You don't have to answer, but you know, feel free to if you'd like. I won't take it personally. How many of you have had struggles uh, staying awake during the sermons on Sunday? Uh, oh, don't get your hands down. <laughs> Tommy and Eric, our youth pastor and worship minister, are, are up there going, oh. Actually, we've all experienced this kind of struggle, and, and you know, maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night, or maybe you've had a long week, or you've been sick, or you know, something like that. We've all struggled with that kind of thing before. And uh, you know, you, you're listening to the preacher, and his voice starts to trail off a little bit, and you start to sound like the Peanuts you know, character, wah, 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 that kind of thing. Um, we've all been there. I've been there. Um, I got caught once in high school, actually, truth be told. Um, I got caught once in high school, and, uh, and, and I... I fell asleep in my head and hit the, uh, the, the pew in front of me, and it had this little indentation, these two little indentations in my head. So after a sermon, I wake up, and my friends you know, had a good time making fun of me. So, so sleeping in church, frankly, is not something that concerns me. Sleeping in church is not a big deal. I don't think that physical, you know, physical problems of staying awake are the real issue. I think what we're going to talk about today in Matthew 26, and it relates to Christmas and, and, and whether or not we're people who are awake. Uh, the thing is, I'm not so worried about sleeping in church. I don't think God's worried about physical fatigue, as we may assume. Um, that can happen for a number of reasons. I think what he's concerned about, I think what the Lord wants us to be aware of, is spiritual wakefulness. Watching and waiting in a manner that accords with his coming. Watching and waiting in a manner that fits, that fits with the truth that the God of the universe, perfect beyond description of him, has come down to earth. That, that awareness is the real question, the real issue. The question isn't whether you're physically asleep, of course, as much as, you, as whether you are spiritually asleep. And, and I fear for a lot of us in a season like this with distractions and busyness and concerns and responsibilities and things to bake and presents to buy, I, I fear that distractions can easily make us asleep on the job. We talked last week about Simeon 
the old faithful man who, who came in those doors of the temple week in and week out, faithfully doing what God called him to do, showing up, waiting for the Messiah, watching actively every couple that came in with a baby. Is that him? Is that him? That's watchfulness. That's readiness. But I'm afraid that so many of us so easily with the distractions of the world are awake to a world that we should be dead to. We're awake to a world we should be dead to. And it's not just an issue for the people of God a couple thousand years ago. As they're waiting for the Messiah, it's an issue for us. The people of God in the Old Testament, (laughs) the Jews, they were pretty much asleep on the job when Jesus came. I mean, there were certainly some faithful ones like Simeon that we talked about last week. But on the whole, most of them were pretty much, pretty much asleep on the job. We know this because most of them didn't end up following the Messiah. And friends, the question for us as believers at Christmas, as followers of the Messiah who are awaiting his second coming, no different than those who are awaiting his first coming. The question, as we looked at it a little bit last week, is whether we will actively work to continue extending his kingdom. The question is whether we are actively working to continue to extend God's kingdom. In fact, it's the kingdom kingdom that was initiated when he came as a baby. What we celebrate is the initiation of his kingdom. So ask yourself this question if you're taking notes. It's a good question to ask yourself. While I'm waiting for Jesus' return again, am I actively bearing witness to the arrival of the baby Jesus? Is my life actively bearing witness to the arrival of the first coming of Jesus? Because at Christmas we're doing much more than just eating food and and, and delivering presents. We are learning to bear witness in our lives to the coming of Christ. As we see in our text today, this isn't a new problem. The first followers of Christ struggled with it. Because the disciples were sleeping. They weren't ready for the battle. They were snoozing while on duty. So go ahead and join with me in Matthew 26 here. I've listed some stuff there about the Messianic prophecies in the study notes. Uh, Feel free to look at that a little bit later. Um, It it sort of outlines uh, how it was that those first disciples were expecting him and, and why they should have expected him because it was written down and they knew these things. And Jesus, the Messiah himself, had come and he said, remember all these things that you read about in Isaiah? I'm here. I'm ready. And so what I'm calling you to is to watch and to wait in a manner like we'll see here in the text in Matthew 26. So let's read together Matthew 26 as we answer the question, what are we to do while we wait and we watch? Go ahead and read with me here. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. It says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This is just before the day he was going to be uh, crucified the last week of his life here on earth before he came back, went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Here's a key verse here. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That's an Old Testament phrase. My heart is so heavy, I feel like I could die. It's a common Jewish way of speaking. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Here it is. Remain here and watch with me. That's the key phrase. Nothing special about this other than uh, what we'll talk about in this one phrase. Watch with me is where we're going to focus today. Verse 39 and following, it says, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. We'll talk about why that's significant in a few minutes here. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. <laughs> the, the answer to this question of what do we do while we wait for God to return the second time, the answer is easy. It's right there in verse 38. It's that main phrase I mentioned, watch with me. What he asks us to do is to watch with him. Loaded phrase. We'll talk about that in a second here. Because it's the kind of thing that sounds sort of like, you know, so I guess I just sit here, Jesus, right? I mean, it's like, I'm just sitting here? Like, that's what it means to watch? Um, there's more to it, of course, than meets the eye. Jesus asks them to watch with him. In a manner that accords with the burden and the weight that he was carrying. In a manner that accords with what he was about to do the next day as he went to the cross. He didn't just say, like, watch, chill out, enjoy life, eat, drink, be merry. He said, watch with me. The disciples were being asked to stand watch like porters at a door, like a caretaker, like a gatekeeper, a doorman, a watchful eye, a ready eye, an active eye. Like Simeon of last week, looking at everybody coming in. I mean, isn't that what we're called to do, really? Isn't that called, isn't that called being the person God created you to be who's at that door watching? In this passage, in fact, it was, it was part of the Passover tradition. The Passover celebration in the Jewish tradition when they would stay up late on this very night and talk about the work of God. Talk about His redemption. Staying up late at night to talk about the ways that God had worked in their life. And to recount what it was like for those first, those first followers of God during that night of Passover. So these disciples should have been able to stay awake to keep watch. They'd probably been doing it most of the other Passovers all of their lives. As a kid growing up in a Jewish family, staying up late at night. In fact, there's a later Jewish teaching that if anyone in that Passover group fell asleep, that meant the group was dissolved. And so, so here in the garden, 
as they're about to embark on their mission as the church, as Jesus' representatives in the world, they're running the risk of looking like a group that's about to dissolve, about to dissolve because of their own lack of readiness. And so, so here they are, being called to act like watchmen at the door. Jesus is saying to them, there are people trying to get into my kingdom. I've come here and established this kingdom where redemption is possible, where relationship with me is possible, and people are trying to get in, and you're at the door, he's saying. And the disciples are sitting down on a chair next to the front entrance, snoozing away with their hat over their eyes. So the question at Christmas, may not be so much about what can you squeeze out to feel good from this side of earth. The question may be, how are you joining with what God's doing at Christmas? How do we as the church, as Jesus' representatives and his ambassadors, how do we act accordingly? In a way, in a way that fits with the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived on earth. And that in the person of Jesus, relationship with him and redemption and forever relationship with the God of the universe is possible. How do we reckon with that? How does it, what does it look like for the church to be sent out today in a manner that accords with the fact that the kingdom of God is here? It's not fully here. We'll talk about that in Revelation next week. But it's here in a way that means that you and I can have a relationship. And all of those people who would come in those doors to know Him are meant to be harvested by us as gatekeepers. What does it look like for the church to send out people who preach and who teach and who heal and who pray as those who are sent out with a kind of intentionality and focus that feels the burden of Jesus' mission here in the garden? I mean, th- think of the burden that Christ felt on that night for his mission to go to the cross to bear the full weight and wrath of God at sin. Think of the burden involved in that. I mean, it says Christ was anguishing over his task so that it felt like he could die. Very sorrowful even to death. So, so ask yourself, in the Christmas season, am I so distracted with shadows instead of substance? Am I distracted with the, the things that, that the world sells me on? Am I so distracted that I have forgotten the kingdom? Here's Christ about to go to the cross. He knows what's happening. He's calling them to this task. He's saying, join with me in redemption. It's not going to be easy. It's going to involve death, anguish, pain, hardship, the messiness of being involved in people's lives. That's what it's going to involve. And And he's asking his disciples, will you please bear my burden with me? Think of that invitation. The God of the universe who saves us from sin has asked us to bear His burden, to feel the weight of His mission, 
And yet, the only thing we can think of is how fun it's going to be to open presents. Or to eat good food. Souls die for lack of knowing Jesus. And we can't find anything better to do than get fat and happy. To squeeze everything we can out of this world. And we serve a Christ who took every possible weight of sin upon himself for us. So ask yourself, am I distracted from kingdom work? There's no harder time to be focused on what Jesus has called us to than this season. No harder time. Distraction is really easy for us church folks. And I want to illustrate... I want to illustrate what this distraction looks like in the life of a church. This applies to families, our, our jobs. It applies to our relationships with one another. Let me, let me illustrate what this looks like in the life of a church for just a couple minutes. So let's pretend, let's pretend that you work for me, okay? Yeah, sure, Scott, you get to be the boss. Let's pretend you work for me. Uh, in fact, you are the executive assistant in a company that I own that is growing very rapidly, and uh, I'm the owner. And this company is growing rapidly, and we want to expand overseas. So, so to pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad to stay over there um, until the new branch office gets established. And I make all the arrangements uh, to take my family to a um, you know, beautiful part of Europe. And uh, I'm going to be there for six to eight months, and I'm going to leave you stateside with the company here. And so what I tell you is that I will write you regularly, and I will give you instructions and directions. I will... I will leave and you will stay here. So months pass and this flow of letters and emails are, are mailed back and forth from, from Europe to the States. And they're received by you at the national headquarters. And I spell out my expectations clearly. Six to eight months pass, I return. And, and soon after my arrival, I drive down to the national headquarters, to the office, uh, uh, to be stunned at what I find, because grass and weeds have started to grow up around the outside, and, and a few of the windows are broken, and, you know, doors don't work. And, and I walk into the building, and the receptionist is, you know, like doing her nails and chewing gum and listening to the favorite radio station. Uh, I look around. I notice that waste baskets are overflowing, that the carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems particularly concerned that I have returned. And so I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there, or I think she's down there. And so I you know, move in that direction, and I bump into you playing chess game with the sales manager or something like that. And so naturally, I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a, you know, a television room or something like that. And I say, what in the world is going on? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Oh, yeah, the letters. Sure, yeah, we, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we have letter study every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night since you've left. And we have, we have even divided all of our personnel into small groups that discuss many of the things that you wrote to us. 
And some of those things were extremely interesting. In fact, in fact, you'll be pleased to know that some of, some of us have committed to memory the sentences and paragraphs uh, from some of your letters. Uh, great stuff in those letters. I think, I think when Christ comes back, he's not going to say, did you read and study my letters? <laughs> I think he's going to say, did you do what I asked you to stand at the door and watch to be actively involved and engaged in what the kingdom of God is doing this side of heaven because because I didn't give you this word I didn't give you the body of Christ so that you could squeeze out what you wanted from it not why in fact I gave it to you so that you could learn what it looks like to be a part of my redemptive plan for the world. I didn't give you the word so that you could be well-versed in the words, but to bear fruit in according with the truth that's in them. Well, you may think that something like, you know, the stateside and overseas kind of thing is an absurd example. I don't think it is. It may be professional suicide as far as your career. But are we any less absurd when we hear God's word without the inclination to actually obey it and to do it? Are we any less absurd? Ask yourself this question. Am I any less absurd when the coming of the Messiah doesn't so thoroughly transform my life that I feel no inclination to serve him? No less absurd. Am I any less absurd when I come to this place, when I talk to God, when I sing songs, when I read Scripture, when I listen to and assemble around the Word of God, and then I walk out the door only to go back to sleep for the rest of the week? No less absurd. At the very least, we may be self-deceived if that's us. And maybe worse. Maybe our own learned behavior of hearing but not doing, and it is learned behavior, Maybe our own learned behavior of hearing but not doing when we hear but we do not do means that we are guilty of creating an environment where being a Christian doesn't have to actually mean fruit-bearing discipleship. It can mean punching the clock, feeling internally good about yourself, when really it's whitewashed too. It's a self-deception that creates environments in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes, and in our churches where the unstated rules about following Christ are just unstated rules. Words we hear, but don't have to actually do anything about. It's an environment where the lowest common denominator of walking through the church doors and walking back out in 90 minutes counts as faithfulness. If we really actually believe Christmas is what Scripture says it is, then it changes everything about how we live our lives. Everything. And it means that for us to watch, to biblically watch and wait, as we see in Scripture and as demonstrated by Christ, means that to watch and to wait with Him is to share in His sufferings for the sake of those who do not otherwise know Him. Why else did he come for you? 
or for me. To watch and to wait with Christ only means to bear the burden he bore. To have a heart that beats for people to know him. If your heart doesn't beat for it, there's some serious selfishness you need to pray out of your life. If you don't bear that burden with Christ, what burden are you bearing instead? Like this is about you? Like, like, like Christmas and His coming and the Messiah is about you? So the question is, at the celebration of His coming as the Christ child, are you found by Him to be watching and waiting? Are you found by Him to biblically watch and wait for people who need to know Him? You ever hear yourself or somebody else ask you this question? <clears throat> I've said it myself. So are you ready for Christmas? Are you, are you ready for Christmas? Uh, what that means, of course, is have you got all the decorations up? <laughs> you got all your presents purchased yet? You got all your baking plans in order? Think about what that reveals. I mean, I think, I think God looks down on some of our plans, some of our busyness, some of our behavior. And I think he weeps like in the garden for how we're prepared. I think he weeps like in the garden and he says, baking plans? Presents bought? What about my son, Jesus Christ? What about that gift? May the Christmas season for us be a chance to rediscover the precious truth of the gospel. The precious truth that an infinitely good God gave us an infinitely precious gift. And that we would be nowhere without it. If Christmas isn't about rediscovering Jesus Christ and the precious gift of knowing him, Christmas isn't Christmas. It's a waste of our time. It's a waste of our busyness. It's a waste of our money. So don't let it go by. Don't let it go by. Without thinking about the extent to which you bear that burden he bore in the garden. Same exact burden that meant that you and I could know him. Does your life exist for the same purposes? Does this church, does your marriage, does your family, does your job, does your money, does it exist for the same purpose? Let's pray. Lord, we're people 
desperately in need of you to come and make yourself known to us. Lord, we, we long to be people whose hearts beat with your cause. We want to be people who are watching, who are watchful, who are about the business of the kingdom, who see past the temptations and distractions of the world. to each Sunday and each Christmas fall in love again with the truth that you came to know us because you love us. Your love for us was so great that you wouldn't leave us to ourselves, but you made yourself known so that we could have hope, so that we could have a life that is redeemed, that is about a purpose and a plan bigger than ourselves, Father. We're grateful for that for that opportunity. We're grateful for that purpose that you've demonstrated to us, not just in the cross, but because you made yourself flesh and made yourself known to us, that you took the first step for us to know you, Father. We're so grateful for that. We are forever grateful for that. And we want to give our lives back to you with every day as an offering. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.